0: Ideas in STEM Ed is a production of the IDEA Engineering Student Center at UC San Diego, which works to promote community, success, and inclusion at all levels. My name is Darren Lipomi, professor of nanoengineering and chemical engineering and faculty director of the IDEA Center. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a forum for the discussion of innovative and inclusive approaches to teaching and mentoring, and to support the personal and academic flourishing and success of students in science and engineering. To learn more about the IDEA Center, visit jacobschool.ucsd.edu front IDEA. My guest today is S.K. Sharma, a PhD chemical physicist turned tech entrepreneur working at the intersection of data analytics and popular music. In particular, he is the chief analytics officer of InGrooves, which was acquired by Universal Music Group, which itself recently had an IPO in the 11 figures. Since then, SK has become philanthropically active with interests in educational access, children's health, and business education. For the last few years, he has been an entrepreneur in residence at UC San Diego's Rady School of Business. SK, welcome to the podcast.
1: Darren, thank you so much for having me.
0: Tell us a little bit about your background, starting with how you became interested in science and engineering.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I get that question often and my answer is is typically unconventional, but I really hope inspiring for students who come from non-traditional backgrounds. Um, I I didn't grow up the children of scientists. I didn't grow up ever being branded as someone who was going to go into science. I sort of sucked at math. Um, Never really had too many ambitions. I grew up in a rather underprivileged part of Los Angeles um but i was fortunate enough to be surrounded by people who um, didn't blow me off when i asked questions and if they didn't have answers to those questions would typically you know point me to a library in some random direction and of course as a child i had no idea uh, how to find those answers and so it really wasn't until much later until college where i was actually an english major and i was told i couldn't write Um, but it happened to correspond with the same Term that I was taking a chemistry and physics GE class that I was like, okay, well, if I'm gonna you know flunk out and fail as a writer, maybe I'll try the science thing, and it just sort of stuck.
0: So you ended up doing your PhD in in physics is chemical physics? Is that the right uh, the right yeah. way to describe
1: it? Sure, yeah. So physical chemistry and chemical physics.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and that was at Caltech, which you started at a young age. How did that happen? <laughs> Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. I, uh, started, I started my PhD at Caltech when I was 19 and it sort of goes back to that, the first part of the story that you opened the door to, uh, growing up the way I did, I, I didn't really have, a lot of role models or positive uh, reinforcement in my life as, as a relatively young child, uh, outside of getting a couple of random questions answered. right? And so I thought I was a bad kid. I got kicked out of school when I was 13 or thereabouts and just was sort of on a bad track. I was, uh, we didn't have the economic resources to secure different types of schooling. So I took a, uh, I was encouraged to take effectively my GED, the California high school proficiency exam, and then was told I had to go to some sort of school. So I went to community college, took the SAT, did extraordinarily well, and that really thankfully changed my life and opened a lot of doors. Um, But yeah, that's really what led to the starting undergrad early. And then of course, uh, you know, Grad school was sort of a natural progression coming out of uh, backgrounds like you and I uh, from undergrad.
0: If you had to do it again, would you still have gone to grad school in hard physical sciences?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, Darren. And, and I think you know you and I have certainly uh, thought about these things in different incarnations, I'm sure, alongside other folks. And and I would say very much so. I would say given the types of backgrounds that, that you and I have at, at very rigorous demanding places, I, I often tell people, you know whether it's Caltech or Harvard, but it's really more about the way you think. Right. It's 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 sort of like the purpose of a liberal arts education. Right. It's it's so it's it's how to think and how to solve problems and how to really pressure test things in a in a rigorous way such. I apologize for using the word rigor quite a bit. I'm not not quite as polished as you are. The, we, like, the
0: we like that well. word. That's good. Okay. <laughs>
1: good. Thank you. I appreciate your support, um, but you know, it, it, it sort of helps you stay away from the Columbus effect, which we see a lot of in data analytics and AI these days, people go, good God, I discovered what is potentially a correlation, but I'm going to call it a causal effect. And I'm going to write about it and brag about it on LinkedIn. Typically, most of those individuals don't have hard science backgrounds like we do. So I would say, yes, I would do it again, because it's been incredibly beneficial, just the way of thinking, not actually knowing what a muon is uh, but just sort of the way of thinking that you and i kind of cut our teeth with i think is, is extraordinarily helpful every day
0: what was your phd dissertation on
1: yeah you know I, I i actually can't remember the exact title now anymore which probably is not a good sign from a <laughs> early dementia perspective but it was it was, <laughs> it was effectively in the field of um, of using st- uh, methods and statistical, uh, statistical mechanics to understand membrane protein structure and function, uh, I, I was not a biologist. I've actually famously never taken a biology class my whole life. If um, if my PhD was up to me completely, I don't think I would have ever worked with, you know, anything more than a triatomic, right? Um, and and you know, I was, as you know, kind of going back to your world. I was more in sort of that Dudley Hirschbach Ahmed whale world, right? Of small molecules are fun. And so one of my PhD advisors through membrane protein structure prediction toward my way as a problem and I'm like, I guess I better go figure out what proteins are and became incredibly fascinated with the fact that, you know, they're governed by the laws of physics. And, and of course, as you know, certainly a lot of physicists and engineers have made tremendous strides and continue to make tremendous strides in, uh, in biology and biophysics. So it, it, was str- it, was, it was around using ab initio Techniques to predict structure, and then use structure to really sort of understand and, and think through function without doing extra crystallography, for instance, with these really tricky memory proteins, which are hard to crystallize. They, they denature.
0: What did you do after graduate school?
1: Yeah, I, I as you know, I attempted a postdoc, uh, and and weirdly, you and I never overlapped, which makes no <laughs> sense to me. Uh, but we'll have to we'll have to get into that one of these days. Um, I, I attempted but didn't quite finish a, uh, a a postdoc. Again, not probably floors away from you at Harvard. Um, I think I realized rather quickly that I probably wasn't going to be an exceptional independent scientist, and and that's, you know, you can throw in that some insecurity, you can throw in that some, um, just perhaps a lack of motivation and and concerns about the funding climate, but. Um, I really wanted to teach and I wanted to do research with undergraduates, but I, I didn't feel like I really had the wherewithal to follow after your mentor or my mentor, right? And so I think for me, uh, it didn't really feel like I was gonna be in academia long. So I went into uh, a couple different places. I went into uh, investment banking. I was at Goldman Sachs for a little bit. Uh, I have this really interesting history between Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, the Lehman Brothers sort of collapsed and fell some people may remember. I then went to uh, UBS, University Bank of Switzerland. Uh, weirdly came back to academia for a really quick stretch, uh, and was a professor at a primarily undergraduate institution, uh, and then left academia again. So, you know, it's sort of tough to figure out what I want to do uh, when I grow up, I guess. But yeah, it was along those lines, somewhere in management consulting, but ended up in venture capital about nine
0: years ago. And what what do you attribute your uh, your movement from venture capital into music and data analytics?
1: Yeah, um, I've I've certainly thought about that quite a bit. And I think I I attribute my you you know, I'm I'm, as you know, I'm I'm very tongue in cheek and and very self deprecating. And and so, you know, when I say I didn't have full faith in in my ability to be a strong independent investigator, that probably manifested in the fact that I was interested in so many different things as an undergrad and as a grad student and, and as a postdoc. And as you know, far better than I do, given your tremendous success uh, and publication record, I mean, it's, you, you've got to focus. You can do a lot of things, but you really have to focus and demonstrate exceptional ability in certain areas. So I would say for me, I've always been interested in many things and I don't wanna say I'm problem agnostic. I, I'm sort of field agnostic. Um, I was in, I I went from venture capital to private equity, and in that world, I realized there was tremendous opportunity in the digital engagement space. And this is about 2015, 2016, uh, where the infrastructure wasn't really there. There were a lot of questions about what people are doing with information, really understanding methods and modes of engagement and bringing scientific rigor just didn't exist. So I, I would say it was really born out of a desire to continue doing science in a completely different field, which most rational adults probably wouldn't do, but it worked out pretty well, I suppose.
0: Did your entry into music in particular, I mean, you, you could have, have pursued consumer electronics, like doing this kind of, of analytics in the automotive industry and, you know, selling TVs, but it was music. So what is it about music from your past that made that a good match?
1: Yeah, well, you, uh, you know, Darren, you you are an exceptional interviewer because you're you're going to go really deep here. But um, sort of alluding back to to how I grew up, you know, we we just we didn't have any money. Uh, but the one thing about growing up, certainly where I did in L.A., was you could turn on the radio and listen to eight different genres of music. Uh, and for some bizarre reason, I, I remember being really, I remember not having much hope in life as a child and that's a really sad thing to say but i hope it's inspiring to students particularly first generation students and students who have struggled um, through a myriad of, of uh, different things to get where they are working with exceptional people like you at ucsd and other places um, i really didn't have much hope but when i turned on the radio and i heard a song for some bizarre reason i was like oh this is cool right i mean i can i can get behind something And then when you saw music videos as a kid, you're like, wow, it turns out Metallica tour in, in Japan. And even if someone in Kyoto doesn't speak English, they know every single lyric to, you know, to this particular track that I like. And and so I think it was a way in my mind of aspiring to be something different, greater, but also, frankly, a way to unify people across cultures, which I didn't really have much exposure to as a child. So I think when I got quite a bit older and and finances were pretty solid, um, and I didn't have those insecurities I did when I was a child anymore. I, I I think I felt like I wanted to go work in a very positive, happy medium, but still bring that uh, gravitas, if you will, you know, of the kind of work that we do. So I don't know if that mm. answers your question at all, but it was genuinely from the heart. Yeah, so,
0: yeah, that uh, that that definitely uh, scratches the the surface. You know, I'm wondering how much did you internalize this struggle. Um, I, you know, a little bit about my own background. So I grew up in a a town west of Rochester where you drive through cornfields in every direction to get to the next town. And we didn't have like a lot of money when I was growing up. My mom didn't work. My dad was a, was a tailor actually like a second generation Sicilian American tailor, his parents spoke Italian at home. Um, But you know. You you couldn't make a lot of money doing that in a a small town. So like we got 90 percent of our clothes from the church basement, like factory seconds. And, uh, you know, I I developed an interest in music as well. we didn't have quite the multicultural, you know, influence as you did with LA's radio stations, but we did have the Eastman School of Music, we did have Rochester Jazz Fest, and we had a great like classical music, like uh, classic rock and classical music station. So like I, you know, that that was my my entry like into it. Um, My the tv that we had growing up my mom won for being the 13th caller to a <laughs> to a radio show and it was a 13 inch hitachi tv and but i just thought like all of this like free music and like pbs programming and star trek star trek star trek that always made me feel like that i wasn't that like at least intellectually spiritually you know uh (laughs) impoverished as now with with hindsight we our family probably was but i'm like i'm kind of wondering this is probably a big question but how much did you yeah how much did you internalize that like being from a first-gen background like how did that contribute to your you know your success later on yeah, first of all, Darren, that is an incredibly touching
1: and, um, gosh, inspiring story in and of itself. I actually did, I knew a little bit about them, but I didn't know all of that about you. And it certainly just makes me respect you and your trajectory and your, your success even more, uh, because as you say, there, there are a lot of corollaries there, right? And, and my heart sort of, you know, went into certain similar places for a second there. But, but to your point, you know, I, I, I used to tell students this as well, um, it, it's good to be hungry, and if you aren't born with particular social capital or privilege, um, but you do have the ability to work hard, perhaps take fewer risks than other folks who perhaps have a, a stronger and bigger safety net, um, and, and, and try your hand at something that is perhaps not completely objective, because we certainly know science is, is not obje- or at least the evaluation of scientific mm-hmm. criteria and, you know, there is there are subjective criteria.
0: there, much but, more gray zone than we tend to give us yes, credit for. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and as as you've alluded to, I mean, certainly as you mature through that process from undergrad to independent investigator, you know, you sort of go, oh, wow, I didn't know this 7, 10, 15 years ago. I thought everything was QED 0 equals 0, you know, in, in a sort of theoretical math sense. Right. But to your point, it kept me hungry always but not for money, for success, for the ability to solve a problem. Um, and, you know, sort of further to the background that we have, initially it was in math and physics, right? Because that was the the obsession. It was like, oh, I'm gonna learn everything about, quant- everything I can about quantum mechanics. And I'm, people say it's hard. I believe it's hard, but I'm, by god i'm going to learn it right i'm going to explain it and i'm going to teach it and then as you know there's an elegance in going through like fermi and thermo uh, fermi's thermotex for instance and just sort of make notes and doing side derivations so i think getting lost in that world was frankly driven by a desire to succeed in what i then thought was a completely objective world right the objective world of scientific uh pursuits and publications and success and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I was like you as an undergrad, I was obsessive about all that stuff. And uh, frankly, that continues to be a big part of what keeps me going today. I just, I want answers, I want the right answers, and I'm willing to work hard to get those answers. And I'm very thankful that the team I have around me uh, embody those traits as well.
0: Do you still read uh, in science, like Scientific American and, You know, Nova, and still are you still interested in in those kinds of
1: things? Yeah, I'm. I'm incredibly fortunate. My longtime collaborator, collaborator Alan Waring, at the UCLA School of Medicine, and I continue to actually publish papers. Uh, So we. You know, we had a paper in the Journal of clinical investigation uh last year we've got a, a paper coming out in plus one uh next month and, and so i actually continue to, to oh do that's scientific cool research that's yeah great. no I, i'm i i i joke that the day i'm ever considered an armchair detective uh, sorry an armchair scientist is the day i'm just sort of done living because science is so core to to who i am so I certainly like I love reading Quanta, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Quanta is amazing, particularly with respect to how they go through certain things in physics. But um, I'm very proud to say that I continue to I continue to uh, I, I don't serve on editorial boards, but I get papers to, to edit, which is a, which is awesome. Right? <laughs> that's,
0: yeah. That's, yeah, that's wonderful. You know, if we worked yeah. in, a, in a closer area, I might uh, I might list yes. you as, a, <laughs> as an editor or as a, as a reviewer. Um, cool that's that's great you know i i started as associate dean for students uh uh, in the last uh, week or so and and one of my fears is that i go as i go farther into the administrative uh (laughs) i don't know uh, abyss (laughs) okay i I didn't say that but like um you know will i still be as will i still be a scientist Will i still think in those ways and i think you know, even when I'm far retired, you know, there's always something that I can think about and, and submit to like oh, sensors absolutely. and actuators queue or, or something. Yeah. Yeah. I should, yeah. I should go back and correct my own, my own bio. So when I was like seven years old, my mom did go back to work and it was like barcoding yeah. books in the, uh, ah. the basement of the library. And eventually she became acting director of our, our library and then did her, her MS degree at the age of 67 Lovely. or 68. So Anyway, just a, a shout out to to Mom there. Uh, um so, uh in your current business, uh you got into music in the uh, in data analytics. Um to what extent in this area does do the does the analytics inform the music and what gets produced or is it is it all the other way around? Is it a one-way street or a two-way street?
1: Yeah, uh I what i would say is is you know given our backgrounds but also i think just our appreciation of of sort of holistic learning holistic with a w right not not an h necessarily but um you know sort of the body the mind the arts the sciences you know i, I know because you know i've talked about this like we have deep respect for for the creative arts and so i always start this conversation or any such conversation with being a music lover and a music fan i have zero desire to play in AI-created content. It's just not something I ever want to do. I, I, you know, I'm a failed drummer. I'm really not very good, but I, I love jamming when I can. And, um, you know, when I'll go to a small place and I'll see folks just jam out, really, even if there's four people in the audience, you, you pick up that energy, right? And, uh, you know, you realize that being human is is just a beautiful thing. And um, benefiting from that creativity at scale, at least to me, is incredibly important. So this is a very long way of saying we really try to focus on the facets that one describe engagement with musical content, and then two, work to understand those facets, which through machine learning and, and embodiments of AI, certainly we know you and I know the difference between you know weak and strong AI from a marketing perspective. Everyone talks about Westworld like it's Going to come tomorrow, right? But that's certainly not where we are. Uh, so I'll just stick to the to the machine learning piece, you know, because it's easier to invoke. But we really sort of focus on how we can build a prescriptive analytics approach to understanding what marketing levers can be pulled in certain areas for certain content or you know, use something like transfer learning to address our cold start problem. We have a new artist, a new market, a new genre. And we're curious about understanding how this particular artist might perform and what sort of audience they're going to build. And then inevitably, if they release a particular track, how that track build an inevitable Tau decay profile looks like, right? And so, and of course, sometimes we don't really talk to artists about decay profiles. That doesn't sound like the <laughs> nicest thing to say. <laughs> um, but but to your point, I you know, A universal music group. I mean, we we, we're the biggest music company in the world. You know, we've got 37% market share and and, uh, you know, very proud of that. So I I guess what I would say is we don't look to use that information to tell an artist what to do. It it can be done, but it's not in our purview. We think as folks who are sort of responsible uh, consumers of of musical content.
0: Are you allowed to uh, indulge in some name dropping as to some what what artists you you have worked with or do work with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's all on our website. You know, we're a public company, but um, you know, I, I'd say if you take a look at the top ten artists in the U.S. I mean, certainly, you know, Taylor Swift, Drake, The Weekend, uh, which a lot of folks have heard of, I think, uh, Post Malone. Our examples are sort of our, our biggest marquee artists, but we're also very fortunate to have uh, the catalog for many other artists. Uh, We've recently announced uh, Frank Zappa, amongst many, many others. Um, so at Nirvana catalog, a bunch of other really cool stuff, right. That sits there and in the ingrews business that, that we work with, we're incredibly talented we're incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to work with, um, independent artists. And so I don't really know what an independent artist is, but you can imagine that it's sort of someone as you, as you obviously, um, are, are sort of, you know, thinking through it's, it's an artist who's likely to be building his or her profile, not a small artist per se. In fact, some of our artists um, are quite large, particularly in the rap and r and B community or in the, uh, let's say Spanish rap world, right? These are actually incredibly large artists. Uh, but for whatever reason, they have a highly affinitized group of core listeners mm. that continue to engage with them. And so perhaps that listening profile doesn't fit like a pop listening profile, for instance. So there's just different engagement metrics and different marketing drivers to sustain that uh, core audience and then continue to drive that growth.
0: When you hire, do you look for music knowledge, uh, music appreciation or pure, uh, engineering skills?
1: Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. We, we, the number one thing I look for is a talented mathematician, scientist, or engineer. So I, I would say, and by talented, you know, it's exactly what you look for, right? It's someone who is uh, capable of thinking through a scientific or engineering problem. Uh, certainly at the PhD level, right? We want folks with publications and and or patents um, who are capable of telling us what sort of problems they worked on, what they've solved, and and music appreciation is a must, right? We work in a creative industry, and to your point, yeah, we you don't need to know how to play an instrument, but we absolutely prefer to work with people who sort of get the vibe of our industry and what we're doing around human creativity. Um, because I, I think as, as you and I know, whether it's, you know, uh, at, you know, working in actuators, or building, you know, ultra high vacuum chambers, or working in music analytics use passion drives so much of what you do day in and day out, right? I mean, it's what gets you out of bed during difficult times. And so, uh, yeah, but in the first instance, we're always looking for very strong technical talent first and foremost, really no different than, um, any other large science or engineering organization would frankly.
0: Do you find that left brain, you know, using the term loosely left brain yeah. ability and right brain, uh, you know, humanistic yeah. appreciation, do they correlate in your experience? Yeah, that's
1: a that's a really good question. And and as, as certainly you and I know, right, it's always tough to ask folks like you and I about correlations because we immediately start getting, you know, analytical about it. Right. And, and are loath to say something that might bite us in the butt later. But <laughs> but 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 to your point, I it, it's certainly there. It's it's there with you and I having this conversation. Right. And 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 what's what's intriguing and I'm sure you would agree with this is is folks like you and I, despite our similar backgrounds, Um, And of course, as we've discovered, we have friends and colleagues, in fact, numerous friends and colleagues in common. um, 80 plus percent of our conversations would probably be not about science. Right. They're much like much more likely to be about other things. And so I think the confluence of left and right, um, it's a bit of a self-selection problem because we look for it. So when we really when we find it, we're very happy to see it. And so there appears to be a very high correlation at the final step. Right. Because I'm like, well, obviously it exists, but of course we're, you know, looking for it and, and we're uh, selecting for it in a very strong way. But yes, I do think there is a high correlation in my limited experience. Um, but you just, you know, as you know, the, it can go the other way as well. <laughs> and you certainly don't want to, you know, for our business, you don't want to work with folks that are too into that stuff. So
0: when you have a qualified candidate who somehow fails the interview or doesn't, Get a job. What are the most common mistakes they make?
1: Yeah. Well, I I would say, particularly with folks from strong technical backgrounds, as as you and I are talking about, I'd say the inability to be concise can be problematic at times, particularly when talking through uh, a fairly sophisticated problem. Uh, certainly, it's something you and I have to do all the time when we're out at conferences or or even through, you know, reviewing papers and things that, that appears to be something when folks drone on incessantly. And some of that is obviously practice, right? I should say you're Um, doing
0: awesome at this as a podcast guest, because I'm, I'm like nearly exhausted my ideas of what the things to ask. Actually, you know, I'll come up with more stuff, but we're we're, at the 28 minute mark. And (laughs) anyway, you're very good at this. Well, thank you, Darren.
1: I I appreciate that. And, and, and I don't do many of these. And so when, when you invited me, I was, I was elated. and, and I mean, and to your point, I, I think, you know, sort of knowing and reading the room and understanding when to go QED versus, you know, take those cues and go, would you like me to drill down a little bit further? Or that's really as far as we got. Um, but that's one thing. Another thing, frankly, just to the extent that it's helpful to students and, and postdocs and others is uh, humility, right? I mean, it's very easy to think in academia, it, in some parts of academia, that you are the world's expert about something or you've got X papers, but as you and I have experienced often painfully in the real world, most people don't really give, right? To, to cares about those things once you step out of the, of the hollowed walls. And so we're looking for people who, are, who also have humility and we notice at times that, um, you know, arrogance is, is uh, very easy to spot uh, and we we just we don't want that I, i'm probably not i probably shouldn't curse on this uh podcast so uh i <laughs> the, will the, the
0: people yeah. who would have cared have already dropped off that you know they're, they're somewhere in awesome. this early part of the decay function awesome. <laughs>
1: yeah exactly uh well I'll, then i'll just be blunt and say you know our number one rule for hiring is no asshole rule. we don't hire assholes we just don't we we want harmony one want piece wants stability now we look for diversity in thought, and diversity in life experience, and certainly, you know, gender and ethnic diversity and all those things. But fundamentally, we want good, kind-hearted people that um, understand that we're all solving problems together. And, And unfortunately, at times, hiring very strong, or scientists with very strong individual contributor backgrounds, at times, they tend to perform poorly in interviews where you ask them to solicit input from a broader team. So I bring my team in, for instance, and we sort of do like a, a group interview, if you will, you know, or we do a case study, or we do a, um, a proposal, like no different than one would do when applying to a scientific job. And it's a conversation, right? And at times, you can tell people go, Oh, oh you're just not understanding it. Well, immediately, I know that that's not someone you want to work with, because you mm-hmm. can't expo- espouse those traits in any professional work environment, particularly these days, it's just not appropriate.
0: Do you ask the candidates to do like a chalk talk, like solve problems on the on the spot?
1: You know, we, we 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 don't do that. Um, what we really so I should I should rewind and say we've tried a lot of different methods over the years right? And, and different things work for different businesses. What we found is throwing someone into the problem as if they were part of the team is probably the best way to assess their ability to work with our team. And so while we don't solicit a chalk talk, we will like we'll have a conversation. I'll go, hey, you know, here's a topic. I would love to see a brief proposal on how you would address this topic based on publicly available information please cite references you know provide which tells me they should obviously go to the literature and should sort of take a look at the the business market if you will and evaluate publicly available information about our company and the industry and then bonus points if they go ping the Spotify API and figure out a thing or two right which many successful candidates do but to your point Darren as we're going through that proposal and and analyzing it, we might go, well, this is interesting. So you've got this distribution function, but I don't really see how you go from here to here. And the implication then is one would simply go, oh yeah, let me walk you through it, right? So Mm -hmm. there's sort of a a implicit chalk talk at times, but only when we're genuinely trying to understand something, not to put anyone on the spot for, for no purpose.
0: What would you change, if anything, about undergraduate education in engineering? Or the physical oh, sciences.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, um, you've, you've touched a, a thing that you and I have spoken about. And let me let me comment briefly on a previous point that you made. Um, first of all, I, I absolutely thank you for for doing the job that you're doing now in student services. It's exceptionally important to have right people there um, with whose heart is in the right place, but whose whose science and contributions are also uh, unassailable. Right. I mean, it's it's and I mean that sincerely because you know, uh, you don't always get that mix, right? Where a student can go, here's a kind, empathetic professional who happens to be a professor who can also sort of understand parts of my background that I grew up, but also a damn good scientist or engineer who's very good at speaking and publishing high quality, high research you know, papers, has won a bunch of awards. So just on a personal note, I just want to say that, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate the job that you Thanks, have- Thanks
0: SK, I, I appreciate that.
1: Thank you, thank you. So, Um, Yeah, coming back to that, going back to that earlier point, I really think the purpose of an undergraduate education should be to learn how to think and how to solve problems. And I I worry that in certain instances, and I don't think UCSD is a problem here at all, but I worry in certain instances, there can be an emphasis on things like rote memorization. There can be an emphasis on recalling facts that perhaps are immaterial to how one would actually work in real life, either in a job or potentially as an independent investigator. Um, I always go back to like I remember taking like this chemistry class where like this one kid was absolutely impressed with being able to recall, you know, the molecular weight of, of like methane or something, right, because and, and a professor was like, everyone here should be able to do that. And you're like, well, but why? I mean, I can't if I do it enough times. but. Why, what does that really get me, right? Shouldn't I be able to do, actually solve a problem or build a molecule or, ha, or come up with a synthetic scheme to you know do something else? And so I think my concern is hopefully we've moved away from aspects of that. And I, and I hope that we have moved more into a practicum basis assessment, particularly in the experimental sciences. Um, I also hope that we have closely integrated uh, theory and experiment much more so. And I'm, I'm obviously biased, you know, Bill Goddard, one of my PhD advisors is, is a uh, has sort of made his whole career on that. And certainly, you know, if you take a look at George Whiteside's evolution in terms of the infinite fields that he's touched, he's also done an exceptional job uh, in many, in very many different fields. So I would say, you know, being able to talk about theory and experiment as if it's just one thing. People talk about data analytics and AI and they go, well, you need data literacy skills. Well what are data literacy skills? Is it learning SQL? Is it understanding Python? Is it for some folks, it might just be opening up Excel. So undergraduate engineering, I think, is is fairly well done compared to, let's say, undergraduate business, <laughs> which I have a lot more to say about. Um, but at the same time, I think with folks like you in Play, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the pedagogical advancements in undergraduate engineering instruction, just based on my cursory review of the literature and how people are thinking about doing experimentation a little bit differently. So
0: how about the graduate level?
1: Yeah, that's
0: Are are we, what are we doing right and wrong there? Oh boy. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, it's, it speaks to a bigger question around, the economic structure and the economic incentives, right? I mean, there's obviously, as you know, far better than I do being a practitioner, there is this sort of question around how many academic positions there are. Does everyone want to be an academic? Um, To what extent are postdocs potentially paid fairly and incentivized to pursue other careers? To what extent are we training graduate students to be open to uh, interviewing and thinking a little bit differently if they're interested in what we used to call, remember when you and I were in grad school, it was like the non-traditional path. If you wanted to go to McKinsey or investment bank, that was a non-traditional path. It's not so non-traditional anymore. In fact, statistically, it, it is where most people are going to end up. Right. Only 5%
0: right? of PhD earners end up in a tenure track position. Wow. Wow. That's across it's, all fields, not just right, engineering. Right. But. Well,
1: and, well and, and to your point, I mean, the, the problem is particularly uh, worse, I would imagine, obviously, in, in liberal arts and, and, you know, fields like that. Um, but so, yeah, they're not non-traditional careers. These are like, you know, <laughs> I, I'm seeing a distribution function with like, you know, a velocity with an MP at the bottom. Like, this is the most probable velocity, right? So, yeah, I think this is where most people are going to end up. And I think focusing on communication skills uh, being able to think not about how to solve industry problems i think that i've heard and that a lot and i don't really understand what that means but i think really encouraging folks in the graduate curriculum to be strong independent contributors write strong research papers because that's really important but also learn how to work across the group or across the field publish interdisciplinary work a lot i mean you've done some beautiful interdisciplinary work and really engage in a manner that that Starts with humility as opposed to sort of the strong, I'm one of the top people in this field. That really doesn't fly in the real world outside of some parts of academia. So, you know, what I see kind of the, I hate to say this, but the traditional alpha male mentality, because it is sadly, I think historically at times it's worked against women. And that's also not okay, as we've talked about. Um, and, and that needs to change. But I think that's sort of like, I'm the best person in my field and I've published these papers, don't care. What I would love to know more about, right, are how you think about a problem organically. And if I threw something new at you, how would you assemble the right team and work with a better group, a different group of people to understand that? And by the way, failure is good. It's okay. That's the one thing I think scientists and engineers are actually good at accepting, but sometimes they're loath to talk about it, but they should talk about it more because it's what makes you open to change. Right. So. Mm -hmm.
0: That's, that's great. Um, did, is, is the, did you want to weigh in, um, on the debate between data science and calculus as something that should be taught (laughs) to to school age kids? This is something that Freakonomics, Stephen Levitt talks a lot about. Um, as you mentioned something earlier, I just want to know if there was more there.
1: Uh, I, I, I would do, do you want to open the floor? I'd love to hear a, a little bit from you around what you're thinking there or, or what the current uh, debate uh, you know
0: Well, there's you is, know uh, I'm, I, I I don't know it well enough to uh, you know to talk about what um, specific, uh, school boards around the country are considering various proposals, but I know that there is an an interest among the intelligentsia, um, people in uh, in economics, um, to to teach how to work with data as opposed to calculus. Like like, um, unless you're an engineer or a physicist, you're not going to use calculus. Um, but we do need to know how to interpret data because even if you don't become a data scientist, you need to know what's the wheat in the chaff when we're talking about covid nineteen vaccines and efficacy and all that stuff, so that there would be at least <laughs> at yeah. least a a background reason for wanting to be more literate in data right yeah, no,
1: thank you that that's very helpful that's a very helpful um, contextual perspective and and I suppose my thoughts are. Um, to your point, as long as we're not taking away from the fields that need calculus, certainly physics and, and engineering and chemistry, right? Where at last I checked it, it absolutely must be a requirement to take multivariable calculus and, and, and understand what, it, what, what a norm is and what spherical polar coordinates are and, and better, even if you've got Diffie Q and, and uh, you know, I suppose linear algebra should be a staple for a lot of people. I don't, I don't know what is and isn't these days, but, but to your point, I I think like most things in life, people tend to pick a camp and then they tend to be defensive of the camp as opposed to really thinking about, you know, what are we trying to defend against, right? What are we like? What is this offensive front? Is it failure rates in calculus? Is it because calculus is a gating course at times and there's a potential to see a precipitous drop-off where people don't go into other, or, and to your point, is it really just a question of data literacy, which is sort of what it sounds like, which is everyone should be data literate, to which I would say, then both. People can be data literate and also have the opportunity to learn what, you know, delta Y over delta X is. If you don't want calculus, let's take the differentials out and replace them with deltas, because that's something my 12 year old son understands, not because Mm -hmm. I've taught it to him, but because to your point, he was looking at some stuff and going, well, why is this moving faster than this? And I go, that's a really good question. Turns out (laughs) that's been done. Um, Darren, you may know this far better than I do. I'll have to dig it up, but I don't know if we talked about this last time we got together, but there there is a paper, allegedly a scientific paper by a physician that delineates a novel method of, um, of mathematical analysis, wherein if you have a curve and you break up what's under this curve into a bunch of really skinny rectangles and you add up all those rectangles, you effectively get the area under the curve. So of course, I, as people know, I'm joking here. I, I'm actually, I'm not joking about the paper, the paper exists. But it was a physician who never took calculus. Who effectively, you know, was like, I've got this great idea about how to understand what's under a curve,
0: and they came I, up with a trapezoidal <laughs> uh, rep- exactly. rectangle representation. Right. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean, I mean, thankfully, I didn't read like the limit of Riemann sums anywhere in there, right? But, <laughs> but, because, that would have been a dead giveaway. But, but this is sort of the anti-Ramanujan. Like Ramanujan actually came up with, you know, the the sort of correct formalism, if you will, on his own but this dude clearly just was either never exposed to calculus or (laughs) decided to opt out. So, so I guess what I would say is data literacy is a must. Yes. Most people in their life will probably never use calculus, but at the same time, I I don't understand why it needs to be antagonistic, right? I think explaining to people with real life examples, as opposed to, okay, now take the second derivative. What's the third derivative. I, 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 I think the way we teach these things has to change. I remember even as an undergrad, I was bored with a lot of expositions that weren't grounded in reality, right? That didn't have certain things I could relate to that didn't speak to population growth or epidemiology. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly everyone understands in physics, the, the, the velocity and acceleration example, um, which by the way, have you seen the, uh, I was gonna wear this today, but uh, I, I wear funny shirts. You may not know this about me, but every time you see me, I'll be wearing a different, uh, funny shirt and not to put you on the spot, but I don't know if you remember the third derivative of position by chance. Um
0: with respect to time. Oh my
1: god. I know Um... it's it's basic. No one does. No one does. It's only it's only for joke value, so I'll just say it. It's jerk right i did i did know that i did know that but i would also
0: forget the the structure of benzene doing one of these interviews so
1: same here same here absolutely (laughs) and 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 let me say for the record there are about a thousand questions darren could ask me at rapid fire that i would just go uh duh i don't know (laughs) right but so i used i used to wear this the shirt And it was, you know, the third derivative position as a function of time. And it was just don't be a right. Don't be a jerk. Don't be an F3 of X. Yes, yes, yes. We've seen very many of those. Um, So so I guess what I would say is just, you know, in a broader sense, just I think at times people take these really strong offensive positions and it's unclear to me what they're defending because you're sort of being jerks and they're sort of like, screw you. You don't know what you're talking about. My position is better and stronger, but like I mean, mathematics is as pure, I think, as you can get. And I think it's to everyone's advantage to have a more mathematically literate populace. Otherwise, you know, planes don't fly and bridges don't stay up. So, drugs don't get made. You know? Yeah.
0: Right on. Describe what an entrepreneur in residence does.
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, I've been incredibly fortunate to uh, have the opportunity to work with. Uh, folks like yourself, and and also I have to give a strong shout out to uh, your colleague and friend, and my very close colleague and friend, Todd Pascal as well. A, a previous
0: um, guest on Ideas yes, in STEM Ed.
1: Yes, exactly. Todd is, uh, you know, hands down one of the smartest humans uh, I, I know. There, there are a lot of smart puppies, uh, you know, that I'm aware of. And I, I don't know, but Todd is definitely one of the smartest humans I know. Uh, but but going back to that, I think it's 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 an interesting thing right because you sort of get to the point uh-oh Oh goodness! I don't know what happened. Sorry, I just got kicked out of the room, or, or maybe the internet dropped. Yeah, it. Welcome some...
0: to <laughs> someone at your ISP didn't take calculus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: exactly. You're like, screw this guy. I, but, tri- trig is where it ends for me. I, I I will go no further. I I am not interested in understanding how trig I, functions change. I know
0: something about chords and tangents and uh, exactly.
1: <laughs> the yes, chord as, theorem. All right. <laughs> as, as, as my uh, as my brother used to say many years ago, you know, he's like, Arctan sounds like some sort of superhero. I don't know what you're studying. I don't know what you're doing. Um, but Arctan, go Arctan, you know? So that was always. <laughs> so I apologize because I said, where, where did we leave off?
0: Uh, entrepreneur in residence, starting yes. at Rady. Uh, yep.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. So, so I apologize for the disconnect. But um, yeah, I, I think what I was saying was I'm extraordinarily fortunate to have the ability to uh, work with brilliant PIs like yourself uh, across the UCSD ecosystem. Um, but, but more importantly than PIs, because folks like yourself sort of know what you're doing, it's really the opportunity to engage with undergraduate students, graduate students, uh, postdocs, and, and staff to work on different facets of commercialization all the way from early stage ideation, which as you certainly know, Darren, given you know your background and, and the stuff that you're working on these days, there are a lot of really good ideas that emerge from a lot of really bad ideas. And that's perfectly okay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being able to talk about that in a comfortable, safe environment and being able to pressure test those things allows you to sort of set up a filter, which, which then goes, okay, by the time I get to, this formulation of a company or a, of a POC proof of concept, is this something that I can use to attract funding can actually build a company around this? Will people pay for this? So there's a lot of things that go through that. And so what entrepreneurs and residents at ready serve to do are engage with effectively any member of the UCSD community who wishes to um, inquire uh, pressure test, uh, seek support for whether it be probably not necessarily financial, but really much more so around strategic advice and guidance around how to start my company, how to write a, uh, a business plan, and then of course, yes, we are we are available to open a rolodex and potentially our checkbooks to to take that to the next stage as well. So at a very high level, that's really what what I think the uh, the the role is about, and uh, it's just, it's something I couldn't be more thankful for.
0: Speaking of um... Some of these sort of extracurricular uh, activities, and uh, you've mentioned some impact investing, and uh, and and also I know that you've uh, that you've become active in the San Diego community in supporting other types of uh, you know societally uh, important causes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your what your strategy is in in that area?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think, you know, to the, to the point that you made early on, particularly given our backgrounds, I, I think education is very important to me. Uh, it's always been important. It's in many ways a, an, it, an unassailable tool of social mobility, right, for folks like us who don't necessarily come into this world with much. But thankfully, we have a brain and, and you know, certainly in your case, supportive parents, and that allows us to do so much more. Um, So I think we have a responsibility to recognize the good things about education and support those, but also to your earlier point, be open about things that can be done differently or done better in order to further um, educational attainment goals, not those set by some bureaucrat, but those set by someone like you, for instance, right, where you're you're on the ground every day, you're taking a look at what happens on the mathematical, you know, are people right? Are they in a position where they can actually read the literature and write a thorough reflective um, review paper or position piece, whatever you want to say. So those are the types of things that we think about on the educational side. And then uh, particularly in light of the recent uh, recent uh, Supreme Court uh, decision, uh, I think, you know, certainly the word used earlier, you know, humanist, right? I mean folks like you and I are humanists we care about people as individuals and uh, I mean I I think like many of us I'm completely boggled by how a group of you know individuals who are so decoupled from women's rights have the ability to make life-altering decisions and so we care a lot about understanding or we care a lot about focusing on things that go to um, uh, gender equality for for probably is the best way I can describe it and recognition of um of humanistic behavior is independent of your background, because good God, why should that define that? Uh, but, and, and, and that's sort of the philanthropic side. Then on the business side, yeah, I, I continued to, to angel invest in promising companies. Um, what's very important for me is that they be led by scientists or engineers. That is, I, maybe it's something that folks don't subscribe to, but I subscribe to it passionately. Mm-hmm. I only want to work with technical founders who know their stuff, who, whose who stuff I can vet. Um, and, you know, folks like yourself, who, who are first and foremost preeminent in their field. And so they speak from a position of experience and authority, not some individual who's throwing a deck at me going, yeah, but this is going to be a $10 billion market, right? Like, I, I can do math, thankfully, because I took calculus. But <laughs> to your point, um, it's really passion, right? So I, I, I'm, I'm enthused about the prospect of working with Passionate scientists, uh, scientists slash engineer founders of technical companies, ideally in San Diego, because as you've seen, um, the demographics have changed, the socioeconomic situation. I mean, there's there's just the funding landscape has only gotten better and stronger in terms of success for PIs like yourself and others. And so, I mean, we are a vibrant community and a vibrant economy, and I think um, the Different facets of funding outside of government funding, but certainly early stage capital funding, um, should reflect that. And I I frankly don't think they have. I think San Diego is underserved in many ways in that respect. Mm-hmm. Outside of biotech. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Final question. What is the last song that you streamed on purpose or remember Ooh. streaming on purpose?
1: Oh, oh, dude. Wow. I love that. You know, you- <laughs> Darren, I've got to tell you, I think we talked about this, too, but but the one thing that we have we found was years ago when we started looking at behavior and we started modeling network effects. Right. And and I am actually famously not on social media just because it's just not for me. Um, but, you know, as you know, people will sometimes go on social media and go, I love this song. Right. Or I listen to the song a hundred times in the early days where you had user love information. We haven't for years. And that's a good thing. Um, you know, the way people stream in the privacy of their vehicle or their home is oftentimes very different than statements that they make right? <laughs> <laughs> on, on social media about something they've heard or something they love. Um, so I will, I, I bring that up to say I will answer honestly. Um, so m- mine's a bit biased because I brought up Metallica earlier. I saw Metallica in Vegas. I don't know if I mentioned that or if that was before or after we got together. Um, so, but that was not the last thing I streamed. Oh yeah you know it's coming to me in fact if, if if you'll indulge me for a second i'll just i don't want to get this wrong and i want to shout <laughs> out right so i i want to get while, the band name right
0: while you're looking that up sure. um i'll just give you mine uh, yeah, it please. was it was um, Oh, what is it? It's by the Blind Boys of Alabama, but it was the it was the the song of the the theme to the, the first season of The Wire. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. But the, but, the, but it was a cover for them, even though it it sounded I don't know more. It's it sounded, as my daughter would say, more better than <laughs> than the the Tom Tom <laughs> sites Tom anyway. I- Right, I'm a but... huge fan
1: of the I'm a huge fan of the Wire, and I, I actually really I own the musical score on CD still because there were some really good uh, really good tracks there. So I know exactly what you're talking about, and I'm I'm gonna pretend like I
0: down in the hole way down in the hole. oh yes yeah. exactly
1: yeah yep I'm gonna pretend like I don't have a bunch of like you know really sad emotional stuff here on my playlist. But uh, what I was thinking of was. Um, roads by a band called rose of the west so yeah it was just if anyone wants to go check that out it's something totally different but uh but yeah anywhere from pearl jam to seeger to eminem to to tool Thomas.
0: as we've discussed yes yes i forgot about <laughs> the, that yeah the, the engineers band <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly well and 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 so much of punk rock as we talked about as right. well right i mean there's so many punk rock um Uh, punk rock leads folks who have PhDs or scientific backgrounds it's just sort of a fun fun coincidence that makes sense when you actually think about what they're talking about so Mm -hmm. yeah
0: all right SK Sharma thank you so much this was wonderful
1: Darren thank you so much for the invite and for your time I really enjoyed this and um, can't wait to do it again thank you
0: Thanks for listening to Ideas in STEM Ed, a production of the IDEA Engineering Student Center in the Jacobs School of Engineering at UC San Diego. This episode was edited and engineered by Sky Lee with theme music written and performed by John Viviani. Title art was created by Caitlin Wong. Special thanks to Sarah Eckard for guest booking and marketing. The IDEA Center works to promote community, success and inclusion at all levels. To reach us for guest suggestions and other feedback, please send an email to idea director at eng.ucsd.edu. And to learn more about our programs, visit jacobschool.ucsd.edu/idea. As a final note, the views expressed by me or the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the Idea Center, the Jacobs School of Engineering, or UC San Diego. See you next time!